think it's time to kick off the chat and see how this uh, goes. I have no idea how this is going to run today, so thank all of you for joining our sort of odd random review session. Uh, I know uh, next week we're going to be diving directly into basically the deep end of capitalism and the rest of anti-Oedipus. From my previous readings, this kind of marks a spot where we move from a lot of foundational conversations uh, that are happening inside the book to things where those start coming together into larger ideas that affect us uh, a modern, different way. Uh, I find the rest of the book uh, fairly incomprehensible unless we have a really good grasp of the previous stuff. And I don't have a really great grasp of the previous stuff. So I figured uh, we would take today, spend an hour, two hours, six hours, ten hours, just actually going over uh, some basic questions we have. If anyone has any, you know, ideas, any, any, any thoughts, any issues with everything we've read so far, uh, this would be the time to bring it up because we're lucky enough to have a, a lot of the admins in here and a lot of people who are very well versed in this stuff to be able to explain it and to go through. And that's kind of the idea here. So uh, I'm going to uh, go ahead and uh, kick it off with, I think, uh, my first question. And it's not so much of a question, but a boy, I really want to understand something better. Uh, and that is uh, territorialization, deterritorialization, and re-territorialization. I can't wrap my head for some reason around all of these terms. Uh, my understanding is that territorialization uh, is a sort of an old anthropological term of uh, when you know, tribes or uh, primitive people or whatever have their sort of realm, their territory that they live within, and as they become colonized, as they sort of grow into the modern world, they lose that territorialization. They are deterritorialized. And that's kind of how the term is commonly used. They don't use it directly in that way. And so I'd love if anyone has any uh, opinions or thoughts around <laughs> what the fuck that means. Because they don't give definitions in this book. And I've tried looking it up, and it's not. Not really clear anyway. Um, I mean, I, I, I think so. Um, you know, I, I ended up spending a little bit of time uh, when we were going through it the first time on, of all places, fucking Wikipedia. Uh, trying to find sources, trying to find places that it can connect to. And it's, it's not a ton of... It's just, there's not a lot of useful stuff uh, written out on kind of how this works and how it functions as a setup. Um, the weakening of ties between culture and place it means removal of cultural subjects and objects from locations in space-time. Uh, in uh, the follow-up to Antiedipus, A Thousand Plateaus, uh, losing Guattari distinguish between relative deterritorialization, which is always accompanied by re-territorialization, and absolute deterritorialization, which gives rise to a plane of eminence. And it's sentences like this that make me go, why am I even reading this? Uh, so that's, that's the tough part for me. It, what, what is... So if we're talking about uh, territorialization as a concept, uh, people have their place and time and where things are done. Uh, when we join sort of that global hegemonic order, uh, we are re-territorialized. We're deterritorialized from that original territorialization. We're re-territorialized into the new socius setup. 
Uh, that seems to generally make sense to me if that is the concept. Is that the concept? And everyone can unmute themselves. This is a, intended to be a larger discussion. Please, this is not me leading it. Not mentioned there. Everyone can unmute and just start talking. Yeah, I think that's pretty much how I'm reading it, too. Uh, I like, I uh, like, where does capitalism take place, right? Capitalism is this sort of global phenomenon at this point, where even like countries like China have markets and stuff. There's like this inescapable, like, placelessness to something that's deterritorialized that isn't there in the sort of other societies that they sketch out in chapter three like the sort of the primitive society yeah when they talk about the primitive society they go to great pains to talk about it as being almost hyper local uh it's 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 they, they aren't this these grand multinational conglomerations of people it's you have your tribe you know them all they're related to you either in ancestry or affiliative um or through marriage uh that is the territorial stage yeah they use that term the 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 deterritorialization as we move into the despot makes sense to a point because if we're talking about rome for example uh, which i think would be Alexander the Great, I think, is a really good example of when they talk about that that despot as a as person. That feels more like uh, the kind of thing we're talking about when it's that weird global strange shit, right? You know what I mean? Like that that I've lost my place, my tribe, my locality. I'm now part of this larger thing. Uh, so that's the option is basically be a bar barbarian tribe outside of the gates or inside of the gates. But if I'm inside the gates. I'm not really in control of my own labor. I'm joining that sort of larger thing, and I don't really necessarily know why I'm doing it. That's the, I think, uh, when they bring up, and it, it's probably a, a terrible analogy now that we know more about kind of Chinese history, but they bring up uh, Afka's or the Great Wall, where the guy didn't know why he was building a brick or what he was placing, but the emperor had the larger message. That's kind of where your work has been deterritorialized and then re-territorialized into this larger grand thing. Yeah, uh, totally. I think that's, that's like exactly what they're getting at, right? Where the, the despot is like the sort of first great deterritorializer where like the boundaries of these social bodies become like, I guess, demolished or overcoded, right? And then they're wrapped up in something with much larger boundaries as, and that's the like re-territorializing overcoding process that they talk about with the, with the despot and, and then the imbrication that they talk about too, right? Where these sort of local units continue to persist, but they're no longer the like primary unit of society. This big empire is the primary unit, the one that gets recorded, the one that's important. And 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 all these other little villages or communities are just kind of, you know, semi-autonomous bricks, kind of making up that big ter ter territory. They've uh, lost their like boundaries, and they've been sort of been what's the word like re-implicated? Uh, I don't know, like like sucked up into this new kind of boundary. Okay. Okay, I think that's making more sense. Uh... Yeah, I, yeah. I'd say it also. I mean, it also connects to uh, the body without organs and these crisscrossing grids that form on it in the 
the non-egg description. Uh, I think that's a form of like territorialization, marking out of these disjunctions and recordings. Yeah, I think I think at some point they start talking about that, uh, and I mean they're going to be in relation to capital, of course, because capital being the new body without organs, basically being the new territory, it is nearly boundaryless. Uh, as they've been describing in the last few chapters, it, it exists essentially on this horizon that's always uh, a little bit further away, no matter how close you move. But uh, we'll be getting into that. But more, I think, I think I'm starting to, I think I understand the concept of territorial. Um, I'm just glad it works out. Uh, let's uh, go with, uh, I know Lou, Lou, you're here. Uh, I know a little bit earlier week you posted, I think, one of my favorites, which I think is going to take up a lot of time. But what does it mean to make use of the three syntheses? Uh, and we'll get into passive syntheses in a second. Uh, but this feel like going over it, Lou? No, is your mic not working? Okay, I had oh, um, I had it hardware muted. Um, okay, yes. Um, so I think actually um, going over what a passive synthesis is is kind of important for this, because um, yeah. Well, let's start there. Um, I think the concept of passive synthesis is primarily taken from Husserl, and there it basically goes into how the what we may, may call given experience is constituted like a pass, uh, the uh, a given uh, the given experience is not received uh, um, without it isn't just preformed. There is there's something going on in the formation of this um, of this um, experience, and that's basically um, this um, what he calls passive synthesis. And I think um, they use this in a very similar way here, in that um, basically the unconscious is the level at which experience that then goes into the subject, which would be the third synthesis where this happens, um, operates on on this um, preformed experience. So basically the unconscious is the level where um, where um, experience is constituted. Now, I don't know enough about Husserl and how he um, actually uh, conceives these passive synthesis to actually understand how this works. Um, and this is complicated. Like I can, when I read when I read um, phenomenological stuff, I can basically ignore this because it doesn't seem that important to understand um, how these passive synthesis work to work on a higher level on the level of subjectivity and transcendental reduction and this stuff. And, and especially I'm coming from sociology there, this stuff doesn't matter at all, it seems. Um, but here we have the case that um, Deleuze and Guattari create this Kantian framework with, um, with um, the synthesis where there's legitimate uses and illegitimate uses. Now, this kind of 
like how how I word it here, this kind of implies a subject of that uses the the synthesis, and that that doesn't sound right, right? So I think we basically need to get into how um, how does how do these synthesis actually work? How does the how how does that actually happen? And what does it mean to make use of um, of of um, of the synthesis, especially in the context of psychoanalysis, because that's kind of the key point, right? So psychoanalysis, or is it actually? That's another confusion. Is it psychoanalysis misusing or, or making illegi um, illegitimate use of the synthesis, or does um, psychoanalysis just describe the illegitimate use as legitimate uses and the illegitimate uses are actually the uses that happen under the regime of Oedipus, which is actually a real thing that's happening. Okay, I'm, I'm going to just interrupt because we're now on, uh, there's so many questions here I share. The reason I wanted to start with this one is because I share the questions and the later ones I don't understand, but they are, I think, Let's go through them in order. So the first thing is let's talk through what is uh, the the syntheses and how they work uh, and how they work on the subject, how they create the subject inside of it. Um, I spent some time, uh, Lou, going through a lot of different writings. I'm going to link to it in the chat, but I want to read through the first time I've had a really good grasp of this is. Um, this is a long document from Stanford on Deleuze. Um, it's a wonderful piece. Uh, I'm just going to read from it directly. Uh, Deleuze isolates three series or syntheses, connective, conjunctive, and disjunctive. In the first, the child connects phonemes in the concatenation of successive entity, mama, dada. In the second, there is the construction of esoteric words out of these phonemes through their integration and conjunction. Your Royal Highness is contracted into Your Highness. In the third, the child starts making these esoteric words ramify and enter into relation with other divergent and interdependent series. We can clearly see that the constructions of the secondary organization of sense are not yet fully formed, uh, are not yet fully formed units of the tertiary arrangement of the language on high. They're no longer merely the bodily noises of the primary order. Uh, the, the way that these passive syntheses work, uh, and it's when you said the term, uh, it makes no sense for the subject to use these, I think that's true. I understand their use of these essentially as part of that almost machinic unconscious that they talk about, um, where it's, it's not so much that the subject is using these, it's that the subject's uh, un machinic unconscious is naturally processing these things from one, uh, one synthesis to the next. Passively, you're not actively doing it, but this is how the machines work. It spits it out one place and then the next and the next. And these are kind of how the machines of life work. My very short version of it. And a link to this great. Yes, that's what you basically said. This was actually how I understood it. But the problem enters when we actually talk about legitimate and illegitimate uses. Like, if we talk about that's just how the unconscious operates. Like, this is kind of um, um, just 
like water flows, right? Mm -hmm. um, how, how, how do the illegitimate uses come to pass and what's the role of psychoanalysis there? Because when they talk about the relationship between psychoanalysis and the three synthesis, then they kind of imply a subject that uses it. In chapter one, I would completely agree with what you just said, but in chapter two, it sounds different. Well, so in chapter two, isn't that where they start, and uh, please correct me, they start using the word imminence, and they don't use it a ton inside of Anti-Oedipus, but God, do they use it, in, Deleuze uses it in everything else when he's talking about this. Uh, the, because that's that's his argument against essentially the Kantian version of this is that it's the uh, transcendent use which is illegitimate. Mm, there's a question mark I'm supposed to be adding to that sentence. Let's let me try that again. There's a transcendent use. Yes, but the problem here is that the Kantian synthesis are active. They are not passive. They are explicitly the synthesis of the subject. Wait, wait. Are we talking about Kant or are we talking about Lacan? Because I thought chapter two was all about dunking on Lacan. Yeah, but with Kant like um they dunk on lacan by critiquing him in a kantian way like they spell out what the illegitimate uses of the three uh, three synthesis are okay yeah i agree with that okay i'm i'm back i'm back <laughs> but, but the problem there is that um kant operates with a different kind of um synthesis because his synthesis actually happen after we have a subject, right? The subject comes before the synthesis. So we have actually a subject that uses the synthesis. But if we're talking about pre-subjective um, synthesis, what actually does illegitimate use mean there? So maybe... I, I'm inclined to answer the question in terms of like they're using the word illegitimate to sort of critique psychoanalysis, right? And that if the unconscious behaves according to these syntheses that they kind of like submit, um, these psychoanalysts, like people like Lacan, have access to those syntheses, but they're, I guess, using them or experiencing them or maybe not experiencing. They're using and verbalizing those syntheses in a way that's illegitimate. And maybe that's that's a start of an answer, but I agree that it's sort of problematic to use the word use when um, these sort of syntheses do exist prior to subjectivity. Like, it, it doesn't make sense to have them be like after and prior to subjectivity because subjectivity is sort of the outcome of that last one where you, uh, the consumptive synthesis Um, I've actually looked um, for some literature on Deleuze and Guattari's use of passive synthesis in, um, specifically, and all I found was actually about uh, difference in repetition and logic of sense, where they have 
another discussion of passive synthesis of other passive synthesis more directly um, um, tied to Husserl and it's basically a critique of phenomenology but I haven't actually found much that explicitly talks about the three synthesis of um, um, the unconscious in anti-Oedipus that just as an aside so the, the closest I think and, I, and again it's been a long time since I've read these is uh, Deleuze's earlier stuff on where he actually does critiques of like Hume, Kant uh, what else did he fucking do? He did a couple others um, uh, that are that are a little bit more balanced out works. Uh, I'm not as familiar with the background that's needed for this discussion, but a lot of that terminology is used throughout that, especially in the book he has on Hume, if I remember it. I didn't understand almost any of it, but it was very simple. Maybe just to come back to what I ended on earlier when I first spelled out the question. Um, I asked whether the use of the synthesis refers to psychoanalysis and that psychoanalysis uses the synthesis, which doesn't make sense much for me. Like I can't conceptualize what that means. Like I can say this, these exact words, but I can't reformulate it in any other way. Um, or whether it, it's more about that this illeg um, illegitimate uses of the of these three synthesis are actually how the unconscious works within the um, within the regime of Oedipus, like the uh, the desiring production in capitalism, and. The fault of psychoanalysis is more or less that they take this, uh, take these illegitimate uses of the three synthesis and reify them as th how the um, unconscious works independently of any social um, or. Uh, independently of the broader context. And like then we ha would have the point that they basically arbitrarily set, or maybe it's not arbitrarily, but from my point of view, I don't understand the reasons, arbitrarily set the way the unconscious works in the schizo as the legitimate uses, and then look at how um, the unconscious works in the domain of Oedipus and contrast these different modes of functioning of the unconscious. I mean, I think I have a starting point of an answer to what use means, which is to bring the discussion back to production. So these syntheses are always about producing something. And so if you're producing anything, which every thing always is, you are using a synthesis to do it. But that still doesn't help me answer the question of how you get to an illegitimate use. Like, what does that mean? I think I kind of, I think, I, I think I get the question better now. I think that I, I, I think 
uh, if Brooks is saying, I don't think there's a huge difference uh, between these two sort of um, halves of the question between that, like, you know, is psychoanalysis using these synthesis incorrectly or are they incorrectly privileging um, the sort of the way that the psycho, the unconscious works in the uh, domain of capitalism uh, as like the sort of, this is the, you know, transcendent, this is the way the unconscious has always worked. Um, I think that they can be doing both of those things and be wrong for doing it, you know, on both levels. Um, I definitely think that the second one is more what Deleuze and Guattari are talking about that, that, that psychoanalysis has sort of, you know, it's sort of on, it's sort of correct about the way that the unconscious works in a sense, but there are big problems with the way that they set it up, right? Like the whole Lacanian thing about the unconscious being structured like, uh, like a language is something that Deleuze and Guattari, you know, obviously disagree with because they're talking about it like it's a machine. Um, that would be an example of sort of like, you know, yeah, where that like that distinction kind of doesn't hold up, right? Like if the machinic unconscious is imminent, then like Lacan is using his machinist unconscious to disseminate a sort of ideology of the unconscious that is incorrect, which is shitty, I guess. And, and then on the other hand, uh, psychoanalysis uh, kind of incorrectly, you know, disseminating that image because it's, you know, factually wrong for Deleuze and Guattari is also illegitimate. Yeah, I think um, basically the the second option where um, the psycho, where psychoanalysis Lacan describes um, how actually how the unconscious works, but f like it's basically they describe how it works currently, but fail to historicize it, and that kind of tracks with the uh, with the trajectory the book has taken in chapter three. Then, right? What I'm missing then is um, what. What what actually privileges the um, schizo as a model for? But uh, no, I no, I actually I think I get that. Okay, yes, okay, and then if we if we have this, that it's basically um, okay. I think the why it's important to to make this distinction between um, psychoanalysis fault is describing or misusing the uh, the three synthesis is because we're getting in this territory where we have to talk about repression later and um, they talk about how repression is basically a mode of trapping desire and I think this this ties into how the um, how the three synthesis synth uh, actually work right? Like um, this trapping, when they talk about desire, desire is trapped in repression, um, is about producing the illegitimate uses of the unconscious. 
Okay. Yeah. That's a good question. I have to think about that for a second. Um, I, I, it seems like we're moving from chapter two now though, to, to chapter three. Uh, is that, is that kind of right where we're kind of building on what we were talking about with, uh, the sort of Lacanian, the sort of dialogue they're having with psychoanalysis to now talking about the way that these, um, syntheses become repressed. Yeah, I kind of try to understand how the um, synthesis synthesis uh, tie these chapters together, right? Like, um, because I think we had a discussion about this um, when we actually we had this big talk about um, repression, where they where we talked about uh, the the three terms of repression with um, signifier, signified, and referent, and we had a problem of not being able to identify what actually um, the term that constitutes the referent is like. Um, how is that a fixed thing and doesn't how how do we get to this third to this uh, to this third term uh, and i think this actually relates to how the three synthesis tie into repression well i I'm not so sure about the signifier and the uh, signified and the referent, but I'm reminded of their triangulation that they offer uh, when they're talking about the sort of tribal societies in the, um, in the first part of chapter three, where they talk about um, it's like eye pain, voice audition and, and handwriting. Um, maybe instead of looking at it in terms of linguistics, right. Where uh, that's kind of the more Lacan thing to do. Uh, they kind of talk about that triangulation as forming that theater of cruelty where um, social repression starts to kick in and where, you know, um, these rituals that, that, that create social repression and bind people together um, do the work of fashioning a memory for man that they like the idea that they borrow from Nietzsche. So maybe that's the start of an answer where that's a primordial in like air quotes uh, form of repression. <laughs> Un the pun unintended, I guess. I think Actually, that's on the right track, yeah. Because that the, the repression and the triangulation is what leads to uh, representation, uh, you know, something being considered not as just in itself. And that's probably has something to do with what's illegitimate for them. Uh, can you guys hear me? Yeah. Yes. Oh, great. Yeah, it's working. Um, wanted to uh, throw something in. Um, I'm actually really new to Antiedipus, but uh, um, so there's something from Difference and Repetition that uh, um, I thought might be helpful here. Um, just on the question and uh, how that works. Um, so there's a, there's a bit in, in difference in repetition where uh, Deleuze talks about the tiny little cells that make us up. And, um, mm, you know, so like we have these 
contracting cells. And I, I'm going to try and read a little bit um, of that. So this is page 75 in Difference in Repetition. Uh, um, so he says, no one is shown better than Samuel Butler, that there's no continuity apart from that of habit, and that we have no other continuities apart from those of our thousands of component habits, which form within us so many superstitious and contemplative selves, so many claimants and satisfactions. And uh, I guess what I was, I was thinking that um, uh, it's like, so he's got this ontology that I think he borrows from Leibniz in many ways of these tiny little larval selves and these tiny little differences that make up everything. And it seems like the synthesis is passive because it's actually done by those, those little perceptions. And maybe uh, the illusion comes when we sort of take that over and we think, oh, I'm the one doing this. You know, I've got this activity, this sort of Kantian self. Um, and uh, I think a lot, so I'm not sure how things go exactly in Antiedipus, but um, it seems like for Deleuze, a lot hinges on, you know, actually seeing that these things happen passively by this like multitude of little perceptions or multitude of little cells. And he calls them different things, like they're, they're the larva also in other places, like the larval self. And uh, I wonder if this might help with, uh, you know, thinking about that illusion um, and uh, maybe with the the error of psychoanalysis also. Uh, that's, thank you for your contribution. Yeah, uh, I, I'm reminded a lot of the sort of, I don't think it, Leibniz, um, not totally sure who he is. Um, so I don't, I don't, I don't, take it there i i see it as the sort of it's a nietzschean thing where um like habits and drives kind of remind me of similar things and like for nietzsche these drives are sort of the sort of like the healthy way to live is to just sort of you know outpour your will and like you know overcome your environment and self-overcoming and all that and um i think in anti-oedipus um deleuze um borrows a lot from nietzsche especially in these sections that we were just kind of finishing in chapter three. Uh, and, and I think uh, a part of where we're getting at the end of chapter three is how a bad conscience is developed and he's borrowing from the genealogy of morals and um, kind of doing their own history at the same time. And, and uh, we're getting at this, that's, a, that's like psychic repression, uh, right? Like that's a narrative about psychic repression is that for Nietzsche, Rizontamont and the will turning back on itself and bad conscience is like psychic repression. And and Deleuze and Guattari are sort of starting from the social repression in the theater of cruelty where people's bodies are marked or or the despotic, uh, the, what is it, the theater of terror where there's this law where the despot has control over your life and your body. And now in the final stage, we're getting to the era of bad conscience where the, uh, the will can turn back on itself and psychic repression becomes a reality and Oedipus and castration are introduced. Yeah, I think that's a really good point, Muskie, because, you know, what we're getting at is this question of uh, how people come to desire their own repression. So it's not like there's this wall that turns the will back around. Somehow it has to turn itself back around. Yeah, and I think that that's maybe where we, we've gone from 
repression from the social set in a social sense to this self repression, right? This psychic repression. And, and, and they've constructed an argument using this genealogy to show how social repression is, has primacy over like uh, psychic repression. And that's, that's a big critique of Freudian psychoanalysis because it's the opposite for them that this uh, castration and Oedipal anxiety is sort of, the genesis of all desire and all repression for Freud and for Lacan. Uh, I could be wrong, but I think they say something in chapter one, basically how they don't believe in psychic repression, that for them it is always social. They might have said something like that. That sounds like something they would say, but I'm not sure how seriously we were supposed to take them when they say something like that. (laughs) Okay, cool. So yeah, we are kind of on the same page. Awesome. The more people are on a similar page, the more likely we're having a a good reading of the book, right? Or at least a good reading in general. Uh, I think someone asked a question about what uh, wanting to go over paranoia. Oh, yeah, the paranoiac uh, machines. I think someone's asked about those. So so maybe I'll try to restate the question. Like, what role does paranoia have in um, Deleuze and Guattari's conception of the unconscious? Um, how does paranoia work for them? And, and what is a paranoiac machine? I guess I can start to answer. Oh, it, sorry, I'm I'm going through and finding uh, uses of it in the book. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah, that'd be great. I think this question comes from the beginning parts of the book more, like section one and two, but I'm not a hundred percent. It it is for sure a lot a lot of these things. It's it's a very early stuff as I'm going through and going through every use of the word paranoiac. It's the first hundred and forty pages are just filled. Paranoiac, the miraculating, and the celibate are the three. They go over quite a bit. Oh, yeah. I might need a review on those. Um, I remember the celibate machine had to do with the sort of consumptive or conjunctive subjectivity. Yes. Um, Okay. And then the miraculating machine had to do with, uh, like, the body without organs, um, the disjunctive synthesis, and and, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Recording? I forget. Yeah, maybe recording, but I had a different word and it's escaped me. Inscription? Inscription is a better one, yeah. Uh, sorry, I was typing. I lost the thread of the discussion. No, you're fine. It's a. Uh, there's just so many uses of this. I'm trying to find a really great... Uh, place for us to at least leap off of from uh, the word of the the wording around paranoiac. 
Because a lot of it, uh, uh, the, we went over the Erstat, and they use uh, paranoiac knowledge throughout that, and paranoiac delirium, all of those fun things. So I think I think one route to understanding this has to do with uh, production versus anti-production, and so it's the anti-productive element that is sort of the source of the paranoia. So uh, to just dive back in on uh, paranoiac, at least in at their time, but definitely in Lacanian terms, uh, paranoiac knowledge, uh, paranoiac is a disorder that comes about because we realize that we can't know everything. That moment when uh, we start to discover that it's just simply impossible for us to directly refer to anything, including ourselves during the mirror stage. Uh, is where the paranoiac uh, sort of comes into play. And Kenyan terms, and I, I believe also Freudian, very similar. So uh, that's at least the use of the word paranoiac. The belief or need to have total knowledge. But I would love to have someone go over uh, how paranoiac machines function, what the parent, like just in general, their use of the word of the, of the paranoiac. And then, uh, you know, with that, the miraculating and the celibate again, because these are terms that are going to come up a lot and they do come up a lot in the next few sections, really the rest of the book, especially as we get into schizoanalysis, uh, these machines and how they work. It did sound, though, am I stupid to put a link between the three machines I just said, as well as the three syntheses? Because it sounded like you were no, saying... No, not at all. That's 100%. Yeah. So, how? Like pretty explicit. But where? <laughs> um, I underlined this today. Let me find it. Because it, it's now that you're saying it out loud, it actually makes a, a lot more sense. But I, I couldn't find where they actually were doing that. Very explicit. Oh, no, I was thinking, uh, no, I was wrong. I was thinking of explicit connections between the syntheses and the uh, different energies, libido, Newman, and Voluptus. It's the line, fantastic. Uh, uh, but the machine remains desire investment of desire whose history unfolds by way of the primary repression and return of the repressed and the succession of the states of paranoiac machines miraculating machines celibate machines through which little joey passes as Bettelheim's therapy progresses i think this in this is i mean they're talking directly about the syntheses that in the second place every machine has a sort of code built into it stored up inside it Code is inseparable not only from the way in which it is recorded and transmitted to each of the different regions of the body, but also in the way in which the relations, all the others, are recorded. Yeah, this it's it it, it sounds the same, but I, I, please, someone go over paranoiac. We have few people who are asking about that. Wrote wrote, wrote in. Anyone want to give it a try, Doug? Um, I mean, yeah, so my understanding is that, like, we're starting with just the process of production and the production of production, and then at some point, they produce this third element in the linear series of uh, the undifferentiated product production, and that's 
body without organs. And since it's like undifferentiated, it's anti-productive. And then this conflict between production and anti-production is what gives rise to this tension where the body without organs perceives the desiring machines as an overall persecution apparatus or oppression apparatus. And, uh, and so that's the source of the paranoia in, in uh, that sort of narrative. But I don't know how to connect that to the sort of psychological sense of paranoia. Or, yeah. They spent a lot of their time uh, early on when they're talking about, uh, let's go back to Judge Schraber uh, with sunbeams coming out of his ass. Uh, they refer to basically everything there as paranoiac delusion. Um, the, the entire concept of what Schreber was going through is paranoia, and they refer to it throughout as that. Um, the great piece, or link to the abstract, uh, to quote, In anti-Oedipus, Deleuze and Guattari interpret the paranoia of Judge Schreber as an exhibition of a storehouse of proto-fascist fantasies. They criticize Freud for neglecting to take into account the ideological social context analysis of Schreber's paranoia. Although they are sympathetic to the transgressiveness of Schreber's delusion, they do not make him out to be an exemplary case of schizoanalytic practice, which was subversive and resistant to the fascist regime of National Socialism. Uh, Kafka is given credit. Uh, they, they go on, but they're talking, they talk uh, quite a bit about that being sort of the beginning of the paranoiac delusion and that it's not always necessarily, that it is necessarily proto-fascist, fascist sort of desire and help. I don't know if that's relevant to what we're talking about. I mean, I think that's good. That gives us some more uh, anchors to tie paranoia to. It's an incredibly complex Um, as to the question just posted in the chat uh, about the addition of Newman and Voluptus to libido um, yeah that's a tough question I mean part of it has to do with the sort of uh, breaking off and siphoning off of flows. Um. Well, let's, let's read the section, because uh, that may be the easiest thing. Um, the desiring machine is not a metaphor. Uh, probably Aldrims, I'm going to mute you real quick. Uh, I'm coming through. Um, uh, the desiring machine is not a metaphor. It is what interrupts and is interrupted in accordance with these three modes. The first mode has to do with the connective syntheses and mobilizes libido as withdrawal energy. The second has to do with the disjunctive synthesis and mobilizes the noumen as detachment energy. The third has to do with the conjunctive synthesis and mobilizes voluptus as residual energy. In these three aspects that make the process of desiring production at once the production of production, the production of recording, and the production of consumption. To withdraw apart from the whole, to detach, to have something left over, is to produce, and to carry out real operations of desire in the material world. 
Okay, so the first mode is the connective syntheses. Uh, this is the just pure production. The second is Newman. The third is Voluptus. Newman, uh, correct me if I'm in, at feel free. Uh, Newman is more, uh, I want to say, godlike passion, godlike understanding. Is that fair? What's the what would how would you define it? I think that's right. I mean, they use divine sort of ironically here, but yeah. And then uh, Voluptus is uh, most sexual. What? How? How normal people would refer to libidinal energy? That that sort of uh, pushing desire residue. Hmm. Is that Voluptus. I think so because it's tied to the the subject as this uh, residual uh, product. That Archaea. Those definitions working for you? That's what I'm going to run with if we're going to start having this talk. All right. Uh, then, uh, how, how, so the, the, the three steps, and I'm going to go back and reread that, uh, the one thing I linked to a little bit earlier. Um, uh, basically, the three steps of the syntheses. Uh, I'm just going to reread them because this is, I mean, this is basically central to their work. And as we get into schizoanalysis, they go over it. I still don't fully understand it. Um, uh, Deleuze argues for an impersonal and pre-individual transcendental field. Subject as identity pole produces empirical identities by active synthesis is itself the result or product of differential passive syntheses. Uh, the passive syntheses responsible for subject formation are differential for three reasons. Each synthesis is serial, never singular. Uh, there is never one synthesis by itself. It's always a series of contractions. Uh, that is to say, experience is ongoing, or our habits require constant updating. Each series is related to other series in the same body, at the most basic level, for instance, the series of taste contractions is related to those of smell, sight, touch here, pro, uh, proprioce proprioception. And each body is related to other bodies, which are themselves similarly differential. Theories of syntheses of bodies can resonate or clash. Together, the passive syntheses at all these levels form a differential field in which subject formation takes place as an integration or resolution of that field. In other words, subjects are roughly speaking the patterns of these multiple and serial syntheses which fold in on themselves, producing a site of self-awareness. Uh, Deleuze never proclaims this as a bald thesis, but Dell develops a genetic account of subjectivity in many of his books. Um, I, like, I like that analysis of how the syntheses really are functioning and all of these different pieces sort of coming together. Any, did that help at all, Archaea? So if, if we have the, the three steps, and the reason they, they go through the three steps, of there's the first step, and they use the child-like uh, uh, setup uh, sort of early on. They, they talk about uh, the three syntheses and how they sort of pass things through. Uh, no, I did not read from that. I read from the uh, anti-Oedipus section.
Um, One question I have yes. thinking about these syntheses is uh, how much is there a kind of, um, I guess, maybe a panpsychism going on? Uh, you know, like uh, you get that in Spinoza, for example, you know, like everything, everything is in some way has a kind of awareness or a kind of, I mean, Deleuze calls it contemplation, right, in the earlier work. Uh, and I'm wondering, you know, how much is that a kind of basis uh, that, you know, so these many little tiny syntheses or contracting, you know, whatever they are, little larvae, um, is it like the whole world is kind of alive for him at a very basic level? Is that, are, are you, are people reading, reading that into, in, in him? Well, it's, it's, I, to me, it's when he gets into his uh, definitions around molar and molecular, I think it's about being both and seeing both at the same time. So I, I think it'd be very fair to say that there's a million little machines constantly always going, and we tend to see things in terms of larger scales, uh, probabilities of groupings and what we name them. But yes, I, I totally would see that. Especially on the level of um, the unconscious, like there's a bit of problem with the term psyche there because uh, the interrogatory, uh, I can't speak, um, like to get um, something that has an interiority um, is a step in this production process. But um, this, uh, the, I think this... Um, And this, um, on this level of this unconscious production, on the level of the production, we have really no real distinction where we could make, uh, say, that some entities take, uh, take part in this and some not. Like we do not even have really ready constituted entities. And on that level, I think there's something resembling a panpsychism and like all these elements Uh, co-constitute the emerging subjects then but it's not like um, that we actually prescribe subjectivity to stones <laughs> right it's only that the stones could like be part of uh, a machine that is uh, sort of forming a residual subject in some way And it's, it's, I think that the term, the residual subject to me is central to basically everything they've been talking about that they're like, if we want to place things in like, let's say there's an order of creation and there's all these little blocks in a row, uh, they're saying the subject is not the thing that creates the desire, but instead desire is the thing that, is, that creates the subject ultimately. In, in terms of like an order of operations, if you let that. And so it's the, yeah, the residual fair, subject. Yeah. The residual subject is the part that's, I think, really interesting to try to place where that subject is created in any of these things, in any yeah. any sort of interactive or whatever. And that's, I think, Antiedipus at a basic level. That's what we've been trying to get to. And their their arguments are because Freud is so. And I'm again, I'm not someone who's huge into Freud, so someone else feel free to correct me. Freud is very much in a place where the subject comes first and the subject is uh, by having the repression is creating the desire. So you're naturally creating your own repression and your own 
shittiness from your own weird subjective fantasies that are caused by you, basically, is I'm boiling down Freud in a way that is going to piss someone off, I'm sure. Uh, that feels to me like generally their overall critique is like, no, it's the reality is there's all these machines in the unconscious, the machinic unconscious, that is creating all of these different bits. Here's how the different pieces work. And at some point, there's this subject is created. Yeah, I just wanted to bring up that uh, in, in the book uh, Against Continuity that uh, Arjun Klein-Herrenbrink uh, published a couple years ago. He, he uses the term polypsychism to describe uh, Deleuze's philosophy here rather than panpsychism, although it seems there's a sort of pan-vitalism uh, underneath. I think uh, I'm in agreement with what Al Dreams posted in the chat about that. Oh, and uh, if, if you haven't read uh, Bergsonism, uh, which is, I think, where Deleuze very, very clearly outlines. I mean, it, we can argue over Pan versus Poly as conceptual, but like it's absolutely his view of things. And the philosophers who have taken it and run with it, I, I, I know everyone here is like, uh, stop bringing up Latour and all these other guys. But when you talk about the real, the people who've been at least inspired to run and go with his philosophy, it's bleeds through everything that we talk about. Any other, uh, let's go with more questions, or, or did we not answer anything? Because it's entirely possible. I actually have a slightly tangential question, which is about how we get from the paranoiac to the miraculating machine. That's something that uh, has eluded me so far. Hmm. I mean, this stuff happens so early on. Uh, let me read uh, a little bit. Um, the body without organs now falls back on, say, Rabat Sur, desiring production, cracks it, and appropriates it for its own. The organ machines now cling to the body without organs, though it were a fencer's padded jacket, as though these organ machines were metals pinned onto the jersey of a wrestler, makes them jingle as he starts towards his an attraction machine now takes place, or may take the place, a repulsion machine. A miraculating machine succeeding the paranoiac machine. But what is meant here by succeeding? The two coexist, rather, and black humor does not attempt to resolve contradiction. But to make it so there are none and never were any. The body without organs, the unproductive, the unconsumable, serves as a surface for the recording of the entire process of production of desire, so that desiring machines seem to emanate from it in the apparent objective movement that establishes a relationship between the machines and the body without organs. The organs are regenerated, miraculated, on the body of Judge Schraber, who attracts God's rays to himself. Doubtless, the former paranoiac machine continues to exist in the form of mocking voices, that attempt to demiraculate the organs, and the judge's anus in particular. But the essential thing is the establishment of an enchanted recording or inscribing surface that arrogates itself, all productive forces, all the organs of production, that acts as a quasi-cause by communicating current movement to them. So true is it that the schizo practices political economy and that all sexuality is a matter of economy. Uh, That's the, uh, where they, they first begin to talk about the move from 
Paranoiac to the Miraculating. Uh, page, uh, I want and early page 11. Um, and they go deeply into this, where they first bring up voluptus and the conjunctive synthesis, all these things. Um, the repulsion of these machines, as found in the paranoiac machine of primary repression, gave way to an attraction miraculating. Uh, comes from? Uh, well, so, uh, if we go with the idea that the paranoiac is the assumption of knowledge, and the miraculating is then uh, the recording of that knowledge, then the celibate would be essentially uh, the belief or the instantiation of that into recorded truth. Uh, once it's been inscribed and it's on the body without organs, this is the assumption of, of this is, as they use that term, oh, so this is what this always was. Um, so the, the miraculating and the paranoiac sort of operate in a almost a binary fashion, one fashioning knowledge, one fashioning how things are, uh, making assumptions about the world, uh, because kind of how knowledge has to work. On the other side, it's the miraculating where it's actually the moment uh, actualization of those or where we actually go through the process of recording those moments into the the great story that exists surrounding us, the body without organs, and as soon as that's recorded, it becomes uh, sacred truth. That is the way it's always. Oh, so that's what that was. So that process, the three syntheses run in that order. Only thing I can think of, because that's how the three syntheses effectively operate. They use the term paranoiac into miraculating into celibate over and over and over as they talk about the three syntheses. So. Yeah, I think you're right there. That's about that that moment of recording, and, and I think this has to do with like sort of Deleuze's philosophy of of becoming as being something that's always working in both directions. Like if you read the uh, first uh, series in Logic of Sense. Yeah. And then they talk about the and they use the the celibate machine or whatever. Um, it, the thing it does uh, is it makes something, it consummates, it, it has this moment, and in that moment, uh, they use the term uh, radiant ecstasy, as though the eroticism of the machine liberated other unlimited forces. Yeah, we may need to actually do a rereading of the first chapter. This is not, it's not a bad idea. Uh, I need to go back through and do that because they're going back over. It's a summary of a lot of stuff that we've gone through, beaten up and dove in. Maybe real. Wow. Uh, the eternal return. Yeah, as we were making the joke, it's a, uh, oh, I finished Anti Oedipus. Time to start Anti Oedipus. <laughs> Um, yeah, with that, uh, what you just mentioned about, um, forget what it actually was, but the, the, the freeing of, of things up uh, in the consummation, um, I'm trying to understand that right now. 
So, okay, so the celibate machine produces intensities. That's what it does, is the moment of recording is not what produces intensities. It's because the moment of recording is inscription. Inscription is not celibate, inscription is miraculate. Um, so it's, I have, an, I, I have a thought, I'm giving word to that thought, and then the third step is essentially uh, the word becomes effectively canonical. Um, this is a three sentences, simplified, uh, copyright, Brooks Brown. Terrible. Fucking off. Why would I say all of this? But that's, that's, kind of, that's kind of the three steps. So the third... No, no, you're totally right. It's because the, the intensive, uh, intensive qualities are these subjective, subjective metastable states that the uh, subject passes through. So to quote, where do these pure intensities come from? They come from the two preceding forces, repulsion and attraction, from the opposition of them. It must not be thought that the intensities themselves are in opposition to one another, arriving at a state of balance around a neutral state. No, on the contrary, they are all positive in relationship to the zero intensity that designates the full body without organs. Body without organs always not neutral. Doesn't, it doesn't produce shit. Again, it's the body without organs. Organs are the things that desire within us. This is the body without them. Fucking nothing. Uh, these uh, organs, though, the machines, uh, the paranoiac and the miraculate, undergo relative rises or falls depending on the complex relationship between them and the variations in the relative strength of attraction and repulsion as determining factors. Uh, my, uh, my first word that I invent a thing, my concept that I have created that is just birthed out of me, it is, and then the ability for me to actually make it my own uh, and the step between those, the, the range, the distance, the, that's where the intensity comes from. When it's the moment it's recorded and I've made it mine as my understanding, and then that next step, which is the celibate, the intensity of the celibate machine is determined by the grand leap I had to take in that step. Uh, in a word, the opposition of the forces of attraction and repulsion produces an open series of intensive elements, all of them positive that are never an expression of the final equilibrium of a system, but consist rather of an unlimited number of stationary, metastable states through which a subject passes. The Kantian theory according to which intensive quantity fills up to varying degrees, matter that has no empty spaces, is profoundly schizoid. Uh, they use the example of Judge Schreiber. Attraction uh, and repulsion produce intense nervous states that fill up the body without organs to various degrees. Uh, the residual general energy when you have hundreds of thoughts, hundreds of interactions, desires, things that are popping up around you, they make you uneasy, they make you this, they make you, Mark Fisher would use the term weird or eerie. Uh, they, these different emotional states pop up to various degrees, various setups. Those are in the celibate. The intensity of those is in the celibate. The form of those comes from the miraculating but the intensity level is from how we've got these two different things within us, uh, the attraction repulsion side of us that's constantly moving. And this is why they use the term body without organs is an egg, crisscrossed with axes and thresholds, latitudes, traversed by gradients, marking transitions, becomings, destinations of the subject developing along these vectors. Nothing here is representative, rather it is all life and lived experience. The actual lived emotions of having breasts does not resemble breasts. 
not represent them any more than a predestined zone in the egg resembles the organ that it is going to be stimulated to produce within itself. There's nothing here but bands of intensity, potentials, threshold, radiant. Harrowing, emotionally overwhelming experience which brings the schizo as close to possi as possible to matter, to a burning center of matter. This emotion, created outside of the particular point where the mind is searching for it, one entire soul flows into the makes the mind aware of this terribly disturbing sound of matter and passes through. Uh, virtual to the actual. Well, yeah, I mean, the, the, the concept of eminence, I don't think we haven't talked about a lot here because they haven't gone super into it. They they mention it lightly, but it's more as a background for how they're using reference conversations. I'm not from qualified to even have that conversation. My brain is very stuck inside right now of free machine. How they produce. Yeah, I mean, what I'm talking about is just the fact that they don't really talk about virtual versus actual in this text, but they are just talking about actual things, uh, and yet it's all still about becoming. Uh, so, I mean, their, their definition of virtual, we want to dive into that a little bit. I'm not sure they're talking about virtual versus actual. Um, I mean, they, they, they do it at a point, but I think their overall concept, again, uh, correct me as much as you feel like, um, really pushes towards the idea that all of this is about the virtual. It, virtual exists where things interact, outcome of what these machines create. Production is ultimately virtual. It's the machines that are real. No? Yeah, virtual is real, uh -huh. but not actual, is the is the way I meant to phrase that. Thank you. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> right. It, it, for me, it's about like what what could be come, but not what is yet actual. But I think the point is that that's always sort of already inscribed there uh, somehow. Please uh, expand on that. It's worth taking a moment. I would, I would love it if you were to take a second. <clears throat> yeah, that's what I'm reading from, like, uh, I guess, gradients especially, is these directions that things move in. And, and so there's this you know, becoming of, uh, you know, proceeding from one state to another. And, um, you know, what isn't but, but will be is something that is now virtual. And, um, yeah, and I think you're right, though, that's like the, um, the syntheses and the, the machines and the body without organs, that's kind of all in the virtual, um, but it is, uh, you know, there's this uh, sort of similar to, I forget where I got this idea from, some some 
video or paper that I write about Deleuze and Guattari, but that there's a, they make this parallel between uh, Marx's formula of money, capital, money prime, and actual virtual, uh, actual prime. And that's sort of their idea of becoming. And, and a lot of, so when they, when they do a lot of this discussion too, they're also uh, almost juxtaposing themselves against a Lacan when they talk about the real, because uh, to quote, again, going back to that Stanford piece I linked earlier, uh, it's got a great little paragraph I'm going to read on this. Um, the schizophrenic as a clinical entity is the result of the interruption or the blocking of the process of desiring production, it's having been taken out of nature and society and restricted to the body of an individual where it spins in the void rather than make the connections that constitute reality. Desiring production does not connect with reality, as in escaping a subjective prison to touch the objective, but it makes reality. It is the real, in a twisting of the Lacanian sense of the term. In Lacan, the real is produced as an illusory and retrojected remainder to a signifying system. For Deleuze and Guattari, the real is reality itself in its process of self-making. The schizophrenic is a sick person in need of help. Schizophrenia is an avenue into the unconscious, the unconscious not of the individual, but the transcendental unconscious, an unconscious that is social, historical, and natural all at once. In studying the schizophrenic process, Deleuze and Guattari posit that in both the natural and social registers, desiring production is composed of three syntheses, connective, disjunctive, and conjunctive. The syntheses perform three functions, production, recording, and enjoyment. We can associate production with the physiological, recording with the semiotic, and enjoyment with the psychological registers. While it is important to catch the Kantian resonance of synthesis, it is equally important to note in keeping with the post-structuralist angle we discussed that there is no subject performing syntheses. Instead, subjects are themselves one of the products of the syntheses. Syntheses have no underlying subject. They are imminent processes of desiring production. I like that. Was that again from the SAP article? No, it's from the Stanford piece. Uh, yeah. Plato, Plato.Stanford. Yeah, that's what SCP is. Oh, hell, there we go. Uh, yes, sure. I don't know these things. Apologies. Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy. Oh, yeah, sure. I don't know. I just, the HTML doesn't have that in there. So I don't know. Yeah. Um, what was that last bit there? I wanted to say something about it, but I'm forgetting. Um, at which last bit? Like the very last sentence. Um, all right. Um, uh, the syntheses perform three functions, production, recording, and enjoyment. We can associate production with physiological, recording with semiotic, and enjoyment with psychological registers. While it is important to catch the Kantian resonant of synthesis, is syntheses, it is equally important to note, in keeping with post-structuralist angle we discussed, there is no subject performing these. Instead, subjects are themselves one of the products of the syntheses. Syntheses have no underlying subject. They are the imminent process of desiring production. Yeah, so I 
I think I understand what is meant here by the syntheses have no subject in the sense of no, uh, you know, conscious experiencing subject uh, performing them. Does anybody else think that there's like a sort of second reading here that, uh, I don't know, there's sort of no subject in the uh, subject predicate sense? Or is that the same thing? Ask a different way, please. Well, it just seems to me like this would be the sort of thing where there's like a double reading of subject in, uh, you know, what is the subject of the syntheses? Uh, what are they synthesizing? Well, or, or, so or so I I read it as I read it as um, the sorry I, I I read it as the object subject up. Yeah, so so I, I read it as the the subject, um, the 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 Cartesian subject, the idea of this this person who exists and makes choices comes after the fact instead of being at the beginning of it. In in Freudian and and a lot of other sort of inscriptions or assumptions around how we perceive reality, there is uh, us and our decisions that go into the things we do. Uh, and the things we act on and what we desire. Uh, they instead say, no, we need to understand first that these things are uh, passive syntheses. And uh, Lou, I'll get into that quote because I, I think it's important. They, they, these, these syntheses are uh, always going, always happening. And actually our subjectivity comes out of them as a virtual uh, uh, effect of the entire thing. That's where subjectivity exists. Not at the beginning where we're, uh, oh, look, the subject's here, and oh, I have these forbidden thoughts. I have them. Me, Brooks, I fuck my mom. I want to kill this person. I want to marry this person. And then those then have their secondary, uh, the secondary synthesis comes to those. And then, for, no, 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 they're saying, no, no, it's actually, no, after, after the synthesis, that's when the, the subject is created. Yeah, a delusion fuck Mary kill, I think is a would be a really interesting drinking game. Um <laughs> But no, I to I want to quote Lou, uh, a passive synthesis is a contradiction in terms. If the synthesis is a process of composition and passivity consists in being the recipient of multiplicity. What we meant by passive syntheses was that we make our way into multiplicity, but that we do not synthesize it. Now temporalization satisfies by its very nature these conditions. Uh, oh, that is a fun quote. Hmm. I actually don't know what that quote means either, Lou. I mean, the contradiction there is that is the synthesis kind of implies the subject, right? It's kind of... Yeah, no, I can't explain it. What, where, where, what is that from? It's from who? Uh, th that exact quote is from Merleau-Ponty. And um, I got it 
from actually a book about Deleuze uh, by Mark Crowley. Um, I think the English translation is um, Deleuze's uh, Transcendental Empiric Empiricism. I can post it uh, in a second. Um, he discusses there the, like, this book is more concerned with Deleuze's solo work. It goes deeper into uh, difference and repetition. And that chapter where this quote is placed talks about how um, Deleuze picks up the concept of passive synthesis in difference and repetition and logic of sense. Um, that's what I talked earlier about when I said that I couldn't really find literature that talks about the passive synthesis concept in relation to anti-Oedipus. And more things on... So, what I'm going to take from that quote and from the readings of this is that and again, a lot of this is going to be a translation and I think uh, semantics more than anything. I think they're using the term passive synthesis here uh, as a, because they and they do a lot of sarcastic, very specific wording in here sort of to be declaratory uh, against what was at least at the time standard thinking. Uh, I think they're they're making the commentary because no one would ever say Freudian syntheses and how people view stuff is an active process. That's not. They just say this is the the syntheses. No one ever said con the, the syntheses are active. Their point is actually what you're talking about is active syntheses. You're placing the subject into a place of control, and what we're talking about is the corollary of that the opposite of that, which is effectively passive syntheses. It, but they maybe don't mean it directly passive in the sense of uh, passive, take it directly on its face, means that these things sort of just happen passively in the background. They aren't part, you're not part of the process. Maybe they're saying it more as a sort of opposition to the concept that the subject is full control of it, which is sort of the Freudian sort of history of that. Yeah, yeah, I think that's right. Like, but it has some phenomenological baggage that I don't can't really figure out. Well, I mean, everything here has a significant amount of fucking baggage. Which specifically are you? Let's start with a little bit. Which which is the problem for you? Top one. Uh, no, this this just goes back to the discussion we had earlier, right? Like, um, when it comes to actually talking about the uses, like, we have this discussion, and I think it, it, we, we kind of circle around it with these other questions we had about the first chapter. And I think it's actually more productive to keep discussing uh, these adjacent concepts than actually going directly back into my earlier question. Fair enough. And I think... It I think to what you said earlier, it, it may be time to read the entire first chapter all over again, because I think a lot of this is, they've gone so deeply into things about how subject places himself, how desiring machines work, how they work inside of various socialists we're about to hit capital. It may be worthwhile to straight back through all of it. We're not going to do that on this, on our official reading, but I would probably, I'm going to do it. I would recommend. On our reading, we will continue moving.
I mean, I'm pretty ignorant in phenomenology, uh, so I'm just curious, Lou, if you know what is meant here by uh, what we mean by passive synthesis was that we make our way into multiplicity. Uh, do you know what multiplicity is referring to here? Well, uh, the real maybe, like not in a psychoanalysis sense, but more in a phenomenological sense, like the world, like or in a Kantian sense, like phenomenology and Kant um, belong together. But um, like, um, if we if we look at you know uh, yeah, if we look at what phenomenology tries to do, right? It's basically trying to find. Um, the basic operations of perception if i'm I, this may be a very incompetent definition of what phenomenology does but um basically i think what that quote talks about is that um the active synthesis in phenomenology would be operations that are done on a given experience right like we have experience and then we apply concepts to it and subsume it and synthesize it into uh, into um into um larger things like this gets into the whole business of noe mount noises that i absolutely can't explain definitely not on the fly and in english um and the passive synthesis are basically referring to the process of producing this 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 um this um this experience on which then the active synthesis can um operate like on which the whole construction business happens like my my most in-depth reading in phenomenology is Alfred Schütz, and I don't think he really helps us here. So this should probably be done by someone who actually knows stuff. Well, so so the the quote uh, I that you posted, I started going back and trying to find it, and it's um, Merleau Ponte specifically speaking about Husserl and his passive synthesis of time uh, that. He has this other way. Of, I mean, it's obvious, it's part of phenomenology that Husserl brought about the idea that ultimately time is just kind of moving on, and time is how we find things either in the past or the present or future. Like that concept around phenomenology seems to be what she's referring to here. I don't think she's taught. I don't think, uh, or Merleau Ponty might be a guy. I didn't assume Jeff. That's my fault. Um, and I'm completely unfamiliar with these writers, so I apologize to everyone. Um, but I think this may not be in reference directly to the passive uh, synthesis here uh, that they're talking about. Whereas I think in uh, in AO, when they use the term passive synthesis, I, again, I'm going to go back to saying that they're talking more as a contradictory language, almost declaratory, that it's the opposite of this assumed hyperactive, I'm fully aware of the synthesis and what I'm doing that it's happening in the background, it's happening in our unconscious, essentially. I'm actually, yeah. I'm, I'm actually pretty sure that this phenomenological sense of the passive synthesis is there. 
and um, we have we have um, on page twenty six of Anti Oedipus. Yes. There we have, there we have the section where they actually intro, introduce the uh, three synthesis as passive synthesis. Um, if desire produces its product is real. If desire is productive, it can be productive only in the real world and can produce only re reality. Desire is the set of passive syntheses that engineer partial flows, uh, partial object flows and bodies, and that function as a unit as units of production. The real is the end product, the result of the passive synthesis of desire as auto production of the unconscious. Um, hmm. And the the break with with with, um, with phenomenology is that they like that that they that they break with um, like I don't know phenomenology enough, but I think the the break there is with the concept of how they actually conceptualize the subject and um, how they conceptualize interiority specifically. Like they do not presume that there is um, a pre-given interiority and individuality. I think that's an assumption that's pretty strong in, in phenomenology. I'm not sure about Meloponti. I know that that's the generation of um, uh, phenomenology that actually basically um, extends into post-structuralism then. As I said, that should probably be done by someone who actually knows what they are talking about. That sounds right to me. Um, I know Merleau-Ponty says multiple times that you know there's no such thing as the inner man, the inner the inner person. We're all we're in every case we're connected with a world. Um, and um, on the active passive synthesis, that really makes me think of. Like the difference between autonomy and habit, uh, going back to uh, Kant, let's say. I mean, Kant defines like the autonomous active consciousness as being the, a synthesis of uh, synthesis of apperception, right? Putting elements together, um, and I think the passive synthesis would be something like something that just happens by habit, right? Something that happens kind of beyond. Um, beyond us as uh, you know the, the conscious agency and so it's like a, it's like a product of the unconscious i think uh, i might be off base here but i think that like yeah it's got to do with uh the habits are sort of what's working with i don't know maybe this is the wrong phrase to use but the things themselves and the sort of constructions are working with the representations of them to, to add I found an interesting analysis. Specific line uh, here, first through it, um, at Encyclopedia of Philosophy, Phenomenology. They have a line where they continue what we mean by passive synthesis that we make our way into multiplicity, but that we do not synthesize it. Unquote. As intellectualist accounts of time, such as Augustine, suggest. Synthesis of the multiplicity of time's moments and the moments of the self must be avoided because it would require constituting consciousness that stands outside of time. And to quote, we shall never manage to understand how a constituting subject is able to posit or become aware of itself in time. It's actually really interesting. Oh, Christ, I'm going to 
That was hard to find the uh, quote in there because they have mean in square brackets. So we yes, yes. tried to find it. <laughs> sorry, sorry. I should have, I should have. Yeah. Well, if you search passive synthesis, there's only a handful of times it's used. Yeah. Um, it's a really interesting. Maybe this gets back to, uh, yeah. I think it was a loose question earlier about the illegitimate uses that sort of the illegitimate uses is working with the, the active uh, syntheses as if they were the passive ones. Lent to quote um, uh, to page uh, 73, uh, psychoanalysis and realism. Um, Use of synthesis that remains fundamentally illegitimate with regard to them? We do not deny that there is an Oedipal sexuality, an Oedipal heterosexuality, and homosexuality. An Oedipal castration as well as complete objects, global image, and specific egos. We deny that these are productions of the unconscious. What is more, castration and Oedipalization beget a basic illusion that makes us believe that real desiring production is answerable to higher formations that integrate it subject it to transcendent laws, and make it serve a higher social and cultural production. There then appears a kind of unsticking of the social field with regard to the production of desire, in whose name all, just, all resignations are justified in advance. Psychoanalysis, at the most concrete level of therapy, reinforces this apparent movement with its combined forces. Psycholo psychoanalysis itself ensures this conversion of the unconscious. Uh, it's their main use of illegitimate is right there. Uh, that is indeed what disturbs us, this recasting of history and this lack attributed to partial objects. And how could partial objects not have lost their virulence and efficacy once they had been introduced into a use of syntheses that were fundamentally and Again, we get to the line here. Uh, we don't deny that these things exist. Um, they deny that these are productions of the conscious. Uh, they also, and they specifically say, uh, the illusion that makes us believe that real desiring production is answerable to higher formations that integrate it. That, I think, is the illegitimate fine point. The idea that uh, desiring production is answerable. These things happen due to all of these different things that they brought about as an exception. Desiring production happens through the three syntheses that are at no point subject to the thing uh, answerable, I suppose. That's why they use the term passive versus active, because not answerable. Hmm. Or am I rambling? Yeah, can you restate that? I think I'm following you, but I'm falling a little behind. So, um, their their use of the illegitimate is focused squarely on the psychoanalytic concept that, uh, yeah, all, that all these desires exist. They're saying all this shit exists. They're not saying there's no one wants to fuck their mom. Of course, there are people who do that. Oedipal heterosexuality, Oedipal homosexuality, Oedipal castration, complete objects, global images, specific egos, all this shit, they're like, no, of course, all this stuff's real. That uh, All this stuff exists. Uh, for them, it's, they, they're like, these are 
we denied these are productions of the unconscious. There's more. Uh, they actually are saying that desiring production is not answerable to the higher formations that integrate it. Uh, I, it's not a thing we can control. The subject comes after the fact. These machines are producing us. And as we look back on them and the things that uh, create them and how these things sort of interact, they're not answerable. Whereas in classic psychoanalytic theory, they fucking totally are. That's as they go through. This is the basic idea of Freudian psychoanalytic therapy is that you need to change your desiring machine. They're like, no, you fucking, you can't do that. The desiring machines are producing. Uh, we need to be very much more aware of what's going into them and what's causing them, but you're, you're not answerable. They're not answerable. That's the... That's the first real use they have of fundamentally illegitimate in the entire document. That I've, was the first use uh, that I've been able to find, actually, illegitimate. Okay, so then this must tie back into chapter three then, right? Like, because there we are supposed to see how... Um, Well, uh, let's start differently. Um, if this is not produced by the unconscious, by what is this uh, this edipal desire produced? Or is it even desire? Like, can we talk about desire if it's not produced by the unconscious? Isn't the it's, 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 I, I think they're saying that it, uh, that they're not necessarily productions of the unconscious. They're, the, 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 how do I put this? Because I, I don't think they put it super well, and I'm having a lot of trouble uh, vocalizing how I'm understanding. So I apologize. When they start going through, and they, let's talk specifically about the primitive, uh, the primitive socius. Uh, what they're saying is how these things operate is uh, a person exists in the primitive. They have these things that are pulling on them, the palliative, the alliances, the desires. The, for them... Uh, they aren't born with this desire to fuck their mother. There's no, there's no Oedipal there at a, at a basic level, like there is with Freud. It's a very core basic drive, is the drive. Like, no, no. The, the desires are uh, always positive. All desires are positive. It's from our instantiation, from our first understanding of reality, to how we make it our own, is the paranoiac instantiation of reality as we understand it when we make it our own which is the miraculating when we record and when we go through that process we record on the body without organs now to them the body without organs during the primitive is these uh is 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 literally inscribing on people's bodies it, when i record it's these outlets for this positive desire flow and the intensity there the more the intensity the more the outlet that desire that blow off that steam valve needs to go off But we had those, and those things, uh, as they get going, produce sort of on their own, very sort of natural. Uh, I don't want to say passively, because I think passively I'm, I'm hesitant to use. But that uh, they're saying that um, as we got to the point where Oedipal, uh, where psychoanalysis has come in, essentially as this asshole who says, well, actually, no, you have these desires. The desires are floating around in your unconscious. You want to fuck your mom. And uh, they're saying, no, 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 that's, that, that's not how it works, that these things can come after that based on these incredibly complex interactions 
as you make these ideas your own, as you build them, as you move forward. The complex interactions are what create those desires. So it's not so much um, the real line here. Um, uh, we deny that Oedipal sexuality is productions of the unconscious. Uh, it's those things are. I lost my train of thought there. Maybe can you clarify? Are there multiple ways in which they use the word desire? I'm certain of that. I mean, they use it. They use it throughout in a lot of different. So it's a. Uh, um like in because in the first chapter i got the impression that desire and unconscious are more or less interchangeable but if we talk about like here we have a very very important split between desire and unconscious right like um because we we talk about desires that are not produced in the unconscious How do desires a uh, desire leave? Um, I, th I think it's um, it's what they're saying is yes, desires are desiring machines create desire, and desiring is produced in the unconscious. They're saying specifically that the 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 concept of edible desire is is itself not a how to put it. Um, uh, there are colors of desire and shapes of desire and all sorts of crazy things, and. Uh, What we have in our machine, the unconscious, is constantly producing light. Let's just use this as an allegory. I'm constantly producing light, and it's red, it's green, it's blue. But uh, Oedipal uh, is magenta. If you don't know the story of magenta, magenta is a, a color we made up. Basically, it fills out the color wheel. Humans made it up in order to fill the rest of the color wheel circle. That's what Oedipal desire is. It's not that it's created directly out of desire or directly out of light. Colors are produced directly out of light. Magenta is not. We made it up. Uh, so what they're saying is the Oedipal desires, the shape that that Oedipal desire is, doesn't come directly out of it. Freud would say it absolutely does. You have Oedipal desires. You want to fuck your mom. You have this, this issue. It's part of the core human experience. And they're like, no, Oedipal desires are a shape of things. That comes after the fact. You have desires, and as desires fire out of you, uh, and as they're created, they get placed into different forms. The form of that is Oedipal castration, Oedipal sexuality, Oedipal heterosexuality. I want to fuck my mom, I want to fuck my dad, whatever. Uh, but that's after the fact. It's not just sort of this core uh, concept. It's a complex shaping of desire that happens after the unconscious produces desire. Yeah, I think that's actually a good uh, allegory that you used because for them, desire is not about lack, right? So it's not about that there was this color magenta that was lacking before. Uh, no, it's you, we had rainbows. Rainbows are beautiful. Rainbows are glorious things. But technically, magenta is a color we created out of that. And it's not, it's not that magenta you know, can't be made. It can. But when we talk about what does light produce, it's like, no, light doesn't produce these things in, in normal settings. We created this complex series of interactions that allows magenta to exist. So if we talk about desire in the same way, desire is this positive force, light pushing forward, 
at some point that light comes out and we go, hey, cool, here's all this stuff. Let's make this new thing out of it. And we make our televisions and we make magenta and we make a, the color brown also technically doesn't exist as a thing. We do like a lot of really interesting shit in order to get these things to work. But none of that is at the unconscious. I did. My interpretation of it is that they're talking about effectively the unconscious as being, um, I don't want to say a natural state because it starts getting a little hippie and woo when I start saying that. But when we talk about how things work uh, pre, pre-sign, pre-integration, pre-awareness, where I complexly am putting together signs into new ideas and new concepts and i'm doing that as a person as i'm live talking to you crazy thing called discord this conversation is not what happens inside of my desire machines my desire machines are producing desire and they produce it in a lot of different positive directions and flowing out i the subject me i have decided the shape of them is in wanting to waste two hours of my fucking saturday instead of playing with my son doing this fucking talk where I'm talking about this stupid shit that makes no sense and no one cares about except for apparently 7 to 12 people at any time. That's what Oedipus is. Oedipus is that last thing that we've taken all of this positive flow. Not that Oedipus exists inside of those flows. No, flows are fairly clean and basic and simple. And our desire machines are constantly producing it. We've taken that and we've consciously made the shape of it edible. And that's when we have that and it becomes this thing that is infective when we've, after the fact, assigned these values to something that's been created. That's what capital is doing, the same way that my dad would say money's capital is how it's always been. Oedipus is how it's always been. These are the realities of truth. These are the things that are the body without organs is telling us. This is the celibate machine firing off. Way it's always been oh that's the shape of the thing that's the realization but that's not being made in the desiring machine that's how i read this section and i how i read their concept around i think i it's a, i think this goes in the right direction um but uh, so like there is this naturalistic streak in this which you pointed out and i think we need to work that out because i don't think that's in the lesson quaterie because i think there is actually um um, like there is a streak in there that the legitimate, like the legitimate um, syntheses have a privileged position in this. They are not, uh, and and um, the illegitimate uses are bad. And this, I don't think this reduces itself to like uh, this naturalistic hippie thing. No, no, I, 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 I want to make sure I, think, I was very clear. I don't think of it that way. I'm just trying to find ways to communicate because this is a really complex. We're talking about uh, essentially is where, where does Oedipus, where does the Oedipal, where does the concept of Oedipalization or the desires that want me to fuck my mom, where do they come? Are they at the beginning inside of my unconscious and they're part of the three syntheses? Or are they after the fact, once I've become a subject, that I have then integrated the concept of the society around me, and I've decided that thanks to the nuclear family being forced upon me, thanks to capital being forced upon me, thanks to Oedipus in general being forced upon me, these are how my desires are taking shape and flow out. They are the sieve that my desires take form. 
I tend to believe they think towards the latter rather than the former. Like I, I, I got what you um, like. I got that you emphasized that you don't think in this um, naturalistic way, but I'm not sure that the way you phrased it actually worked it out. And I, I think it's kind of hard actually to figure out how they actually do that. But um, my, um, my, my hunch here is that we should go on to try to phrase this in the terms they use, like they, they use um, not like in, in chapter three, that's all chapter three, where they talk about how repression works, like territorialization traps desire. I think mm -hmm. that's basically the process that you outlined just now. Yes. And um, that, Oedip that Oedipus and is effectively a territorialization of then we need to figure out what here exactly is the relationship between um, social production and desiring production because like what I got from this now is when they say is something is not produced, a desire is not produced in the unconscious, this is basically saying it's not in the realm of desiring production but in the realm of social production. But that may be wrong because maybe both are the unconscious. <laughs> well, okay, let's. Uh, when I when I hear the two terms, I would say they're both the unconscious, but we're talking about two different types of unconscious. If we want to talk about earlier, we use the term poly psych or or panpsychic, and God damn it, my brain. Uh, we, we talked about that earlier, basically, the, the molar molecular conception. To me, the desiring machines inside of my unconscious at a molecular level, that's desiring production, whereas the uh, desiring machines collectively that are happening inside of the molar, built with a multitude of us, that's social production. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's my impression too, but there's again that I'm not sure whether they are really strict with their terms. Like they have this a sentence with there's nothing uh, nothing besides desire and the social, right? Like um, this connects, uh, like this is uh, the same, isn't it? Like um, it's uh, the same distinction between social, uh, desiring production and social production. And um, basically what I got earlier was that um, the the sentence when they say um, that the Oedipal desire isn't produced in the unconscious is more or less that they said it's not produced in desiring production, but in social production. But this may be wrong. Uh, I think so. Uh, to quote, um, uh, what is invested by the libido throughout the disjoint elements of of Oedipus, especially given the fact that the elements never form a mental structure that is autonomous and expressive, are these extrafamilial, subfamilial gaps and breaks, these forms of social production in conjunction with desiring production. Uh, they, they are explicit here that the extrafamilial and subfamilial gaps and breaks are forms of social production in conjunction with desiring production. So I, I, I do think they're, I mean, they don't, 
maybe they don't say it explicitly, but they are referring effectively to this this conception of social production being the unconscious of groups around any given sort of larger body without organs that's shared amongst people. Okay, but to what to which realm does territorialization belong? Like, well, I, the I, the answer would be both. They just operate, uh, I think, uh, in between people. Basically, if we want to talk about the, the psychic space in between people, and now I'm really getting into weird language, I'm uncomfortable. If we want to talk about that, that the territorialization that happens inside of a tribe, for example, inside of the primitive, uh, that at a larger scale is a territoriality that happens almost exterior to the tribe, but is absolutely shared generally speaking, uh, as a concept. Whereas I also share that individually within the tribe. I have that same general con conception of what the territory is that I operate within or that we operate within. I think that's the difference is if I'm going to say I or we. When it's we, I'm saying social production. When I'm saying I, it's desiring production very specifically. But also, does social production is effectively the result of a lot of almost meta level of desiring production. Uh, so I, I think territoriality operates in both, deterritorialization operates in both, and re-territorialization operates in both. Yeah. Like, this is, like, that's basically what I would have said earlier, and I think it's right, but I'm trying to figure out, like, what's the outside of the unconscious they are talking about when they are talking about... Um, that the Oedipal desire is not a product of the unconscious. Like, because we, we have established that a repression belongs to territorialization and to, um, to, to this process of production, which is the unconscious. But what's the outside the, uh, they are referring to? What is the thing that creates Oedipus then? Yeah, basically. I want to say it's something parallel to um, <clears throat> what they say about the conscious creation of capitalism and how the first capitalists were conscious of, uh, you know, their oppression of labor, but how that is sort of forgotten afterwards. Um, I'm going to read uh, from page 118. We, from the beginning of this study, we have maintained both that social production and desiring production are one and the same, that they have differing regimes, with the result that a social form of production exercises an essential repression of desiring production, and also that desiring production, a real desire, potentially capable of demolishing the social form. But what is a real desire, since repression is also desired? How can we tell them apart? We demand the right to a very deliberate analysis. For even in their contrary uses, let us make no mistake, the same syntheses are at issue. It is clear what psychoanalysis expects to gain from claiming a link, where Oedipus would be the object of repression, and even its subject through the intermediary of the superego. Uh, from page 116. 116? Oh, it's 116, sorry. 
uh, my the PDF I'm reading has terrible marking. I was, now I'm at the top of page uh, one seven. Um, from this, it expects a cultural justification for psychic repression, justification that makes psychic repression move into the foreground and no longer considers the problem of social repression as anything more than secondary from the point of view of the unconscious. That is why critics have been able to observe a conservative or reactionary turning point in Freud, the moment that he gave an autonomous value to psychic repression, addition of culture, acting against and drives. Wright goes so far as to say that the crucial turning point of Freudianism, the abandonment of sexuality, comes when Freud accepts the idea of a primary anxiety that supposedly touches off psychic repression in an endogenous faction. Um, so I'm going to attempt to answer, Lou, where Oedipus comes from. Uh, essentially, Freud, Freud's desiring machines created a whole bunch of shit that came out the other side as the, the subject we know as Freud. And inside of that, Freud uh, inserted into the social machines the concept of Oedipus. And because he was able to say that it worked prior to the three syntheses and operates prior to anything that we've been aware of, that it exists so deep inside of you that it's your core being. Uh, it short-circuited everything that was happening around it in the social sphere, and then, because of that, it was able to then essentially infect the desiring machine. So we're talking basically about uh, some sort of computer virus that can affect a network at large, and once it's done that, it's able to go into the computer and operate at a very basic on die on chip level where it's before windows runs we want to use video now so oedipus comes from that sort of large-scale interaction and the repression there but because it says and this is the insidious part and they go over this a lot uh, the insidious part of everything being turned effectively in oedipus because it says it happens before any of these syntheses it becomes takes them over. Does it help to distinguish between um, empirical and transcendental here? Um, the reason I'm asking is that, um, so it sounds like maybe what Freud is, or what uh, their uh, criticism of Freud is that he takes something empirical and, you know, makes it I guess transcendental, or or maybe even that Freud doesn't doesn't actually have an idea of anything transcendental. He's not really a philosopher, right? He's just a uh, he's a psychiatrist. And because um, uh, so my impression about you know of Deleuze and Guattari is that desire has this transcendental aspect, right? It's kind of um, it's it has this philosophical source, so to speak, and not um, it's not just a kind of a power of wanting things um and um and so with the the, the third synthesis from the difference in repetition what's interesting about it is that you know it ends up with this empty form of time they call it right like attachments to objects are given up and i think that's the ascetic aspect right and then you end up with just an empty just a relationship to empty time itself um and i've been taking that to 
to be the outside, you know, that to be like the pure transcendental. Um, and that's something, I mean, you're not going to find in Freud or only, you know, with the death drive, I guess he kind of uh, has some gestures towards that. But, you know, he's he's still uh, kind of a material uh, psychological uh, scientist, right? Okay, okay, two, two, uh, two things. Like, I actually think this section on 116 and then following has probably the answers that we are looking for. I think we need to read um, a bit farther, and I probably need to look at this with a bit more time and not on a Discord call. But um, I think that's... Um, the right section, especially because um, what they say about the critics, um, that is why critics have been able to observe a conservative re reactionary turning point in Freud from the moment that he gave an autonomous value to psychic repression as a condition of culture act acting against the incestuous tribes. That's exactly the naturalistic tendency that we've talked about earlier, right? That there's a natural desire that gets repressed and the natural has to be restored or repressed um, to be compatible with culture in the case of Freud. Um, yes, actually, uh, yes. Oh, okay. Yes. And right, I think, go ahead. Go ahead. Sorry. I think, yeah, I think they go into how they actually... Um, like they they ask this question how can we tell the real desire and uh, real desire and um the desired repression apart and i think they go into this in the following section but i need to read this with more time yeah i think you're right that that section is good especially I'm, I'm not quite sure how to elaborate on this yet but uh, that they bring up uh, displacement uh, as uh, they say, uh, consider the 1908 article on civilized sexual morality. Oedipus, Oedipus is not yet named here. Psychic repression is considered in terms of social repression, which gives rise to a displacement and acts on the partial drives. So I think that is like going along with what you were saying, Brooks, about sort of, uh, you know, the pre-processing levels of things uh, insofar as they represent in their own fashion, a sort of desiring production, but we've got a representation, right? Not, not quite the real thing. Uh, before being exercised against the incestuous or other drives threatening legitimate marriage. And so again, they're not saying that these drives don't exist. They're just, uh, they're, they're saying, they're saying that these things happen, that, that these things are results of operation. Whereas in the next sentence, it becomes evident that the more the problem of Oedipus and incest comes to occupy center stage, the more psychic repression and its correlates, suppression and sublimation, will be founded on supposedly transcendent requirements of civilization. And, and I think that ties to what Al Dreams was saying about, uh, you said, empirical versus transcendental. And I think I would rephrase that as uh, transcendental is transcendent. Uh, you know, and going, attempting to go in beyond what is uh, empirical. And empirical is sort of the interplay of the imminent and the transcendental.
I, 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 I really wish there were better words for some because it's yeah. the basically their argument. I'm gonna try to rephrase again because this is this is going to be so important to the rest of the chapters. Um, uh, the concept of Oedipus uh, is not transcendental. Instead, uh, we need to instead think of things materialist perspective. Materialist perspective uh, is that we as humans have desire. We want we want shit. We want stuff. And those desires are shaped inside of our unconscious through a series of desiring machines. And the desiring machines operate through the three syntheses. They outline them. And the result of these essentially becomes the subject, comes up. Uh, the insidious part is we are told for the last hundred or so years that actually know that it's not just that we desire stuff. It's actually that we desire specifically to fuck our moms. And that's the drive behind everything else. Have lack because we worry about our penis being cut off. We worry we've, we have penis envy or all these things that are uh, sort of the core drives. And their argument is, no, these things are not transcendental. They're the result of, uh, they're after the fact. Actually, our core thing is we just desire. So it's, yeah, it's transcendental empiricism feels like, I mean, that's what he says, for sure. It's not uh, transcendental idealism, but it's it's what's transcendent, I think, that is important here, because they use the term supposedly transcendental requirements of the civilization that is Oedipus, which Freud believes, and a lot of people have beliefs that there are some core things that are needed for society to function, and they're, trans they're the transcendental truths. So it's not the idealism of Oedipus and these conceptions, but instead a materialism that comes with Right, right. They're the, those big truths or big others signifiers, and that's what they're trying to stay away from, right? <sighs> so are we all just conduits for our own desires? I mean, that's it's where, where we plug in and how we plug into things is machines we take part in. Where where does the subject come into that as a as a choosing desiring thing? Uh, I guess they're never our own desires. That one more time. Yeah. I guess we never own them. No, I guess we never do. But we do have them. We don't lack. Well, so the the question would be then, as I read it, it's not so much that we have. It's not so much that we have desires. Desires implies that there is a semiotic thing that I can say here are my ninety two desires. But instead, actually, what we have is desire, and that's what we have. That's the material reality is we have desire. And the complex situations I interact with and play within myself and around myself over time is what determines what those things are as I'm taught when I'm younger, uh, what truth is, what things matter, what I ought to be doing, all of that slowly shapes those things. And they become my miraculating machines, ultimately leading to the, the uh, what's the third machine? Um, syllabit. Syllabit machine. Uh, where 
the truth is instantiated inside of me on my body without organs uh, of sorts and i that is that determines effectively the intensity of my belief and what i feel about those things. and this happens all the time constantly satisfying mm-hmm. yeah but i think you're right Like they talk about how the uh, intensive states are determined by the, these relative uh, attractions and repulsions. <clears throat> and they don't really say anything more than that. And, and that's why it creates a little unsatisfying, or at least not from what I've read so far. Well, and it's it's again they they just talk so hard against idealism. Um, uh, page, I want to say one eleven. Uh, the three errors concerning desire are called lack, law, and signifier. It is one and the same error. An idealism that forms a pious conception of conscious is futile to interpret these notions in terms of a combinative apparatus. Makes of lack an empty position, no longer a deprivation. Turns the law into a rule of the game no longer a commandment, and the signifier into a distributor, and no longer meaning. For these notions cannot be prevented from dragging their theological cortege behind, sufficiency of being, guilt, and sanctification. Structural interpretation challenges all beliefs, rises above all images, and from the realm of the mother and the father retains only function, finds the prohibition, transgression, structural operations. But what water will cleanse these concepts of their background, their previous existences? The geosity? Scientific knowledge as non-belief is truly the last refuge of belief. As Nietzsche put it, there never was but one psychology, that of the... Desire is the transcendental. Hmm. Well, I think maybe one sort of satisfaction we can take is that that uh, things are never closed off, right? They're always open. Um, you know, the totality that we have discovered is always just another part among the parts. Um, and, uh, yeah, just kind of take what you understand and try to learn from it. I don't know. That sounds very wishy-washy, but. Can you read the part of that quote you just read, Brooks, about uh, lack? Yes. Um, I got to back up. To uh, I'm just going to, I'm actually going to read lack from the next paragraph. Um, from the moment lack is reintroduced into desire, all of desiring production is crushed, reduced to being no more than the production of fantasy. I like that. Now I'm going to read the part you asked. It is futile to interpret these notions in terms of combative apparatuses that make of lack an imposition, no longer a deprivation. Uh, this is a direct shit on, on for sure. Uh, mm-hmm. 
but it's the the idea that actually lack is a deprivation it's not it's not this empty it's not a thing we naturally have uh, that it's not right, this empty position it's, it's, of nothing it's socially produced artificial scarcity right correct the deprivation of us of our desires of our fulfilling of those desires uh, um yeah the makes of lack an empty position and no longer a deprivation that turns the law into a rule of the game and no longer a commandment and the signifier into a distributor and no longer a meaning notions cannot be prevented from jagging their theological cortege behind efficiency of being lack guilt rules of the law and signification signifier Defined uh, structural interpretation challenges all beliefs, rises above all images, and from the realm of the mother and the father retains only function. But what water will cleanse these concepts of their background? Uh, the, uh, again, I mean, this entire book could be called Fuck Clichés. Like, that's kind of, to put a fine point on it, that's basically what they're saying throughout a lot of this. Like, if something's a cliche, be aware of it, get rid of it. And that's what they're trying to do with everything. And they're, by doing so, they pull us all the way back to the idea that desire at a basic function produces. We have the three syntheses from Logic of Sense uh, uh, that he goes through again. They go deep. I mean, it's Logic of Sense. Is that the first, for those of you who know Deleuze, is that really where he first goes into the three syntheses? And Kant and all that, or is there a better example of it? Because as far as I know, it's kind of the best. The connective, conjunctive, and So, sorry, where are we? Like, I know that, uh, like, I know that um, Deleuze uses the uh, passive sim uh, the concept of passive synthesis in earlier work but i think these three synthesis are introduced in anti-oedipus got so many three I google that Synthesis of time in R. I'm just trying to see if there's other references to these because it's the the uh, Stanford Encyclopedia of SEP, as you guys called it in shorthand. Uh, references them as well, side of logic of. Maybe you just like shit. I'm going Yes. All right. Uh, any other uh, questions, uh, thoughts, wonders? I know we have a few people who haven't asked any, said anything, have any 
Three, two. Type it out and say it. Out of. What if that's it? Uh, I am going to slowly close us. Lou, did you have anything? Doug? 61, um, all dreams, anyone. I, I mean, this was a really good talk. I think it helped uh, me understand a handful of things a lot better. Uh, I also, of course, raised a lot more questions. Can y'all hear me at all? Hey, there you are. Yeah. Am I really soft or am I coming in? Pretty good. Medium soft. Oh, I think Discord finally fixed itself, so it works on my phone now. Yay. Um, yeah, I know this. Actually, I was just um, discussing some like analytic type stuff about um, um, possible world semantics and like... Um, it for a couple hours before I came here and I was getting all confused and I didn't understand it until I heard y'all talking about Deleuze. <laughs> Isn't that wonderful? That is. No, I don't understand. Ah, Deleuze is awesome. I love Deleuze. Can you summarize the uh, connection that you made? I wish I could. <laughs> <laughs> Um, it, I, it all kind of started coming together in my head when I was like, oh, okay, well, this is why univocity is so important. And I was like, you know, it's been so long and I never really figured out what the deal with univocity and Deleuze was until, um, I kind of, uh, put every, started putting these things together. So the kind of question of whether we can speak about the divine and the psychological using the same kind of terms, whether they're divine properties and psychological properties could share, could overlap, or whether divine properties are of another type, you know, the, the kind of an analogical argument that is famous from Aquinas's readings of Aristotle's uh, interpretation. I don't know how to say that word, because I'm bad at saying like, de interpretation, that's like my Latin for you, right? Um, but there's this whole thing in the background with um, divine simplicity and aseity and um, whether or not uh, properties uh, can be attributed to the, the divine, which I think Deleuze just like really just he's just like, boom, he puts it in, just like pushes it through and it's just like amazing. I don't know. I just feel like, mm, I just felt the, the uh, you know, phenomenal philosophical energy coming through me all of a sudden, but I don't want to like, I don't want to sound like a crazy person also in the other hand. So. I have to be careful. I have to be like, okay, well, I think that everything is coming together and I'm understanding things, but I don't want to like um, be overconfident and like exude too much confidence about it because I may, I may not be able to explain it very efficiently as of yet. I mean, let's be very fair. If you haven't heard, I speak with a great deal of confidence. I'm basically, so feel free, like jump in because it's, yeah, I, I turned my icon into the fool from the tarot because uh, that's how I feel a lot of the time when I read this stuff. Yeah, so don't don't hesitate jumping in because again, the whole concept of polyvocity and all of this, we have multiple lenses that we see things through, and what you say may spark some, like we, like 
I would just say just sort of happened when I was talking with Lou and we were diving into his question. I was trying to feel out what the fuck he was talking about. Harder than I. But I think we got to some really interesting no. discussions. Uh, <laughs> it's fairly true. But we got to some good discussions. And uh, I just want to also mention, Lou, uh, 100%, by the way, in logic of sense, he doesn't call them the three syntheses in the same way he does in Anti-Oedipus, but he goes through the connective, conjunctive, and disjunctive uh, series or synthesis. He goes in depth into how they work at a basic level inside of the uh, mind and our perception. So it's it's totally, I I think it's very feels like uh, it's 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 an early play on that or an early sort of at least a sight into what those three how they operate how they work. Uh, interesting, I find it. Yeah, I think that makes sense from what I know about that book and. Probably this will be one of the next Solo Deleuze books I'll read, so we'll see. Yeah, it's in a language and event, uh, the section of it. It's really uh, kind of fascinating. Re-operate. I'm going to have to read this through because I think it'll give a, a lot of background into what is really happening here, uh, what, he, what they're talking about. They don't go, this is not a treatise on... You know the three syntheses and how they operate, even though they have a section. To, but like, it, language and event is dedicated to these three and how they operate and how they work for children and how signs are built and how language is built uh, inside of them, which feels spot on. Yeah, I'm. I'm still. I still haven't really gotten um, a good hang of the the the, vari the various syntheses, um, and um, and probably a lot more. I mean, of the. I I feel like um, I'm I'm scared of reading Deleuze because it seems like it's a cheat sheet sort of philosophy. <laughs> um, so it's just like I'm like, oh, I can resolve all my the answers to my problems, but then like I'm not gonna go and like have motivation to read a bunch of other texts and stuff. So I'm kind of scared a little bit. I have to approach it delicately. I think I think that's fair. I would say it it's had the opposite effect on me every time I read another fucking section here. I'm like, okay, what in the fuck is he talking about here? Okay, time to read genealogy of morals as an example. Um and it's uh Push me in a lot of new directions. Oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. Oh, okay. I just wanted to say that we still haven't done the session on the genealogy of Mars. No, we need. I mean, God, there's so many sessions we have that we've been wanting to do. I, I finally have uh, air again, so I'm, I'm certainly going to be continuing to host this one. But we've, uh, I don't know if, if anyone would want to host it. Feel free to. I will absolutely attend. I can only host. Uh, the two that I'm doing right now, life and work. But I mean, we have room. Feel free to jump in and do it. It'd be great. Yeah, I have a lot of life going on as well. Uh, but I wanted to um, point something out about the discussion we had. We basically discussed, like, we, uh, okay, let's start there. We had going into this two questions. Um, First, Brooks' question about deterritorialization uh, de and territorialization. And the second, 
uh, was my, my question about uh, the three syntheses and how this discussion evolved. We basically came to the point where these questions connected. Like um, we talked a lot about how the three syntheses work with repression and how and their territorialization comes into it. And I think that's a discussion we'll have again and again um, in the next in the following weeks now um, as we go into um, chapter four where we actually learn something about what Deleuze and Gattari think how we should do um, schizoanalysis and I found this trajectory we had in this discussion interesting <laughs> thanks Brooks this, this was, I think this discussion was great. Uh, I'm, I'm now diving into a language and event and digging into the three syntheses because I think, I, I, for me, it's about, a lot of this is about trying to communicate in a way my brain is able to take it in because I don't have the background in a lot of these terminology that they use to talk through phenomenology, be able to talk through psychoanalysis to be able to talk through really even anything Nietzsche writes. So for me, it's about like, how do we talk through what these things settle at? And the, I think even just getting the order of where Oedipus is introduced as a, what may seem like a semantic thing is actually so deeply important because I think that's where they're like trying to pull us back to. Hey, hey, just all of this shit happens after desire is already made. Like we don't have Oedipus and then desire. We have desire, and then at some point we introduce this thing called Oedipus. We're saying that it's preceding, not by saying it's preceding, we're fucking ourselves in a lot of really bad ways, and we need to be careful. I think. I mean, they're going to be getting into that with capital for sure. Where again, it's going to be about how these. Desires are coded and decoded, where we place them, how they're set up. And again, the desire being the transcendental thing. That I that alone, I think, is making my brain think about things in a just the saying desire it being transcendental is interesting. I'm not sure what to make of that because for me, transcendental is sort of getting at the limit of things and I'm seeing desires coming in, you know, from the start. But we might just be using words differently. I think we may be using words differently. Hmm. You know, I would love to read Logic of Sense, actually. That's um, one one of the Deleuze books that most is appealing to me. It's like most obvious that I should read, I guess. Um, and... Uh, I think that um, well, I have a friend who's who might be interested in particularly helping out with reading that book as well. I don't know what um, if y'all wanted to do that officially in some capacity at some point in the future, possibly or not. I think um, oh, definitely for sure. And I, I so for me, there's there's only two Delusian books. Like so, I have, not that I've decided how the server is going to run, but for me, there's only two books we're going to do readings like this where we literally read the entire fucking thing and we do analysis on each paragraph and it's this and a thousand plateaus all of their all of Deleuze's other books or Grotari's other writings I think are much better served with summation readings 
I don't know if civilization will still be around by the time we get through a thousand plateaus books. I, I, I think it will. I, I think, uh, I think, I think it will. Um, well, who knows? I mean, fuck. yeah, that's a fair point. I, I was <laughs> worried. I was joke about how long that might take. Hell, hell, a year might be too long. Um, so, but yeah, no, I think uh, like lo- like logic of sense is one of those that I think does really well from a. Having someone who's versed in it, having someone who understands it, pick out some paragraphs, go through a handful of readings, discuss the concepts, because a lot of logic of sense, and I've I, very long time, copyright. Yeah. Um, but I think that would be really useful. Yeah, yeah. My buddy is... Uh, is- Oops, just cut out 61. Oh, sorry. I know. My finger always does that on my phone. Uh, he's very familiar with Freud, and Melanie Klein is like one of his favorite, is probably favorite psych- uh, psychologists. So, um, um, and he's like constantly, and he, he'll, he'll talk to me about uh, for hours about it. But he's stuck in Germany right now, and he's in a weird situation. <laughs> but by the time we finish everything up here, he might, he might be ready to, to do that. And he's just, uh, He's a fountain of information when it comes to like um, uh, historical psychological concepts and stuff like that. So, awesome. oh, and he, he also told me he would be interested in logic of sense reading groups as well. And that's uh, like the one Deleuze that he wants to read. Well, I'd ping him and be like, we would love to do that. Um, and I'll hit up uh, Al Dreams. Uh, I've just heard about apparently the Portland meetup group for Deleuze is one of the better ones in the world. I just moved outside of Portland. So quite happy. Um, well, I'll hit up. Uh, I'm I'm annoying you. I all dreams. Black. We're we're trying to figure out a way to interface and grow the server and do some. But yeah, I think it's it's worth putting that together. But I'm going to go through logic sense language uh, specifically, and I'm going to find the three sections on three. Uh, 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 please help. Brain. Synthesis. Synthesis. Thank you. That's not a sign. We're slowly going to be ending here in a few minutes. <laughs> so, um, but I think that that's really great. Um, cool. Uh, any other? So uh, we only have a couple people left. But uh, is does anyone else have any last questions or random thoughts they've had? Uh, leading up to what is going to be Monday as we dive fully into capital. Last words. Yeah. Any last words as we move into capital? Any last thoughts? Gonna assume that you don't. You just are silent. Fine. I'm excited to see where we go with it. The I, I've read the next section three or four times now, uh, our last read. It's going to be a good one. I'm jazzed. And with that, I think I'm going to go ahead and close out. I thank all of you guys very much. Uh, thank our one YouTube viewer. You are loved. 